Um, first, we shall take some questions from the internet audience, and then um, I will ask you to come up and, and uh, there's a microphone here. You will come and ask your question. Tell us your name and ask your question. Yes, questions from the internet audience. Is from Paul and Kavita in California. What is the distinction between the mind and the intellect? Could you help us understand it with an example or analogy? When I experience an internal tug of war in my mind, for instance, between wanting to concentrate on the mantra in meditation and another part of me pulling away at wandering thoughts, I am aware of this internal struggle. Who is this I that is watching this mental tug of war? Secondly, if this whole world was created as God's Leela and each soul is a character with a definite role to play, then is our spiritual progress and eventual realization of Brahman predetermined by the great play director God? Do I have any say in changing my character's role or is it preordained? All right, two different questions. Well, the first one is fairly simple. What is the difference between mind and intellect? You would say that it's not simple, but actually these things are very well defined in Vedanta, very well defined, thousands of years ago. So what is, how do you define the mind and how do you distinguish it from the intellect? The mind is, in uh, Vedanta, the, the basic definition is sankalpa vikalpa atmika manaha. That mind is which oscillates between different possibilities, which has no uh, fixity. Notice how the questioner said, when I'm doing japa, my mind wanders, it goes here and there. That is mana, mind. So we try to bring it back on one point, but it considers many things. So the classic example which is given is, a man is going in the darkness, in the semi-darkness, and a distance sees something which looks either like a dry tree stump can imagine with two dry branches which look like hands or it could be a person standing there now in sanskrit sthanu va purusho va is it a dry tree stump or is it a person waiting there when your mind is considering these possibilities this or that like dislike want do not want struggle wandering it is called mind the same thing inside it's called mind when you come closer, the man comes closer and sees, oh, it's a stump of a tree, it's not a human being at all. Clarity comes, that flash of understanding. That is intellect, buddhi. Sanskrit definition, nishchayatmika buddhi. It's the same inner sense, the subtle body, two different functions, clearly different functions. In one way it is called mind, in another state it is called intellect. It's the same thing. So when you're solving a math problem, you're struggling with it, this way, that way, can't get it. And suddenly comes a flash of understanding. Yes, I've got it. The first part was the mind. And the second one was intellect saying, yes, this is it. Nishchayatmika buddhihi. Nishchaya, nishchaya means conviction or clarity or fixity. And sankalpa vikalpa, the weighing and considering of different of, uh, options, that is the mind. So this is the difference. Notice how in the question itself, the person who's asking the question has noticed this, that sometimes the mind is concentrated and fixed, clarity is there, and sometimes it's wandering from this to that, trying to repeat the name of God or Japa, or trying to meditate. 
So at that stage, this is the difference between mind and intellect. The second question is very metaphysical. So you've already accepted this is God's play and God has ordained all this. Now, do I have any role in this? The question is loaded. It's a trick question. Because if you say that, no, I have a role, it's, it's up to you, then God is powerless. Imagine a director of a play where every actor does whatever he or she pleases. How frustrated the director would be. Everybody is improvising. Though I, I know that there is a whole field of improv, but, but even there it has to be within a certain uh, um, paradigm. So what is the role of God if I can do whatever I want? And obviously I cannot do whatever I want. Our lives are so circumscribed and limited. On the other hand, if I say, yes, it's God's play, you got it right, and you have no role at all, that sounds very negative. That sounds very robotic, predetermined. So it's a loaded question, what do I do? What do I say? The answer was given by Sri Ramakrishna himself. When asked such a question, he, asked, he immediately asked a counter question. It's God's play, what role do I have here? How much of a role do I have here? And his counter question was, who are you? If you investigate in depth, you will find you and God are one thing. What you call God is a sense of separation. This entire universe is predetermined, is controlled by some big guy out there. And I'm playing a little role here. But actually, this universe, and I who am experiencing this universe, we are one consciousness in which both are appearing. Did we not just meditate? The fourth. When I say I am a little person in this God's play, the entire play and I the little person, both of them are appearing in one consciousness which is the real me. So there you and God are one. That's the real solution. But suppose you say, let's put non-dualism aside for a moment. The non-dualism is very convenient. You can answer every question. Though people who ask the question will say that you are, um, you are doing away with the question itself. You are not really answering it. So how would a dualist answer it? Non, not a non-dualist, a dualist. There is this world, I am there, say something called God, I believe in God. Now tell me, is it preordained or not? Both is true. It is God's play and in this we have our roles. And from our point of view, we have the freedom of will to whatever we do determines our next, the rest of our life and lives to come. What we are is the end result of whatever we have done, thought and said. Thinking, speaking and doing consciously whatever we have done in past lives, the culmination of that is what you and I, what we find ourselves to be now. And what we do now, what we say now and what we think now. Kai Manavakya in Sanskrit. What we do with these three instruments, mind, speech and body, consciously, that generates karma. And karma shapes what we are in, in this life and in future lives. So that's a provisional answer. That's not really the answer of Vedanta. The real answer of Vedanta is what we meditated upon. Yes. Thank you. Swamiji, he had a couple of householder questions. A couple of questions. All right, let's yes. go on. Um, how can I determine the best path for my personal spiritual advancement according to my temperament and tendencies? Uh, do the Ramakrishna Mission Swamis help householders, sadaks, with specific instructions in meditation and the allied spiritual disciplines? Did 
Sri Ramakrishna create a plan for spiritual growth and God realization for householders? If so, could you delineate some principles of the path? Of course he did. In fact, in the Gospel of uh, Sri Ramakrishna, you again and again find people who are people in, in family life, who are, hold a job, are, they are not monks, and they come and ask, what is the way for us? And Sri Ramakrishna would say that God realization, enlightenment, is open to everybody, is in fact the goal of life. Being a monk is a specialized choice. You don't have to be a monk to be enlightened. But, though I, I'll have a little you know, side, side note there, a little fine print there. Yes, you don't have to be actually a monk, formally, physically. But, you have to be monk-like in your mind. When you move towards enlightenment, one must to some extent rise above the concerns of the world. Just imagine the meditation which we did life, right now. Whatever we consider our worldly life to be. To do this non-dualistic meditation, you have to step back from the waker, dreamer and deep sleeper. All what we consider our life to be. Family, problems, health, um, uh, career, all of that is in the waking life. And shadows of that you will find in the dream life. And the merged darkness in the deep sleep. And you have to step back from all of that. So the reality is beyond that. Basically, that is the monastic attitude. One does not have to become a monk, but monk-like internally. That story of the monkey, I've told it uh, sometimes, that there was a monkey who used to come and steal the, the vegetables in the farmer's, um, uh, you know, in, in his uh, farm, and the farmer thought he would treat, uh, teach the monkey a lesson. And he put those vegetables, some vegetables, in a jar with a narrow neck. And when the monkey saw this, he crept down from the tree and he put his hand in the neck of the jar and caught hold of whatever uh, banana or whatever it was or some vegetable and tried to pull it out. Of course, it got stuck. And the farmer came rushing down with a stick to beat the poor monkey. Now, the monkey has a choice. It can let go and run away and save itself. Or it can struggle with that. that I don't want to be beaten, but I want that banana too. Now it gets caught. And the poor monkey gets a thrashing. How can the poor monkey save itself? The monkey mind has to become a monk mind. <laughs> yes. Internally. Externally, you may be the CEO of a company. You may be... Um, and it's possible, actually possible. I met this person in India. He is the CEO of, um, of what is called... An, it's an image company. That means... They have photographs and rights to those photographs and they sell it to advertisers. It's, yeah, it's, it's the largest image company in Asia. He is the CEO of that. And he invited me for a dialogue and we spoke for six hours. We have talks here for one hour. People ask that these talks are too long. One hour and people complain. I gave a talk for three hours. And then again afterwards I joined that CEO for lunch and we spoke for three more hours. The total of six hours. And you know, in India we eat our food with the hands, so my, the food became dry on my hands. Like, he's, all he's interested in is philosophy and spirituality. I asked him, uh, aren't you neglecting your office work? Because it was in his corporate office and the door was closed. They were under strict instructions not to disturb him. And he said in Hindi, Wo hai, Swamiji, this is just something I do 
to make a living. It's not really my passion. My passion is this. So you can be a spiritual seeker and a CEO of a very big company. You can be a family person, a husband, a wife, a father, a mother. You can be in school, you can be at work, whatever. Spirituality is for everybody. So that monk mind is necessary. Now Sri Ramakrishna suggested, he gave all of these the different suggestions. When people would ask what is the way exactly like this, he would give different suggestions. He would say, repeat the name of God. Once in a while, Sadhu Sangha, company of the holy. Withdraw once in a while. He says, uh, a forest, a forest may not be available, but Central Park is available here. Or an ashram is available. Step back from your career and family. Be by yourself once in a while. Do sadhana. Swami Vivekananda put it this way. Karma Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, Raja Yoga and Jnana Yoga. The four broad paths of spiritual life. The question here was, how do I know what is suitable for me? And Swami Vivekananda's answer is, because we have an intellect to understand, you can practice Jnana Yoga. Because we have a heart to feel, to love, you can practice Bhakti Yoga. Because you have hands to work, you can practice Karma Yoga and serve. And meditation is useful for all the yogas. So practice all four, but to answer your question directly, which is my path? As you practice all four, you will feel, you will feel that you are taking to something more easily. Something becomes more live there. So maybe I, bhakti, devotion, that feels real to me. I feel alive. The others feel mechanical. Then you know this one is according to your tendencies. But still, you may give more emphasis on the path of devotion. But keep the other three. This was the insight which Vivekananda gave. The harmony of four yogas. They balance and equipoise each other. Each yoga has its dangers and pitfalls. When you have all four, they balance and equipoise each other. Yes, depending on our nature, one will be more effective, one will be more... Um, you like it, you'll enjoy it more, maybe you'll give more time and energy to it, but keep all four in your life. All right. I do hope you have questions. Yes, there's a question there. Please come out here, tell us your name and ask the question. Who else has questions? Let me see the hands. Yes. And yes, we'll, I'll come back to you. Please tell us your name. Uh, Pranam Swamiji, my name is Anuj. Yes. I've come in from Jakarta. Very blessed to be here. Jakarta? Yes. You're coming a long way. <laughs> uh, my question is, Swamiji, uh, we've been following your talks for a long time and uh, came across, like you just described, the various paths to God-realization. Another uh, topic that I came across in one of the books on autobiography of a yogi was Kriya Yoga. And I yes. wanted to understand your perspective and take on how do you think Kriya Yoga fits in and is that something that you would uh, recommend us to consider? Kriya Yoga is a term which is used originally you find it in Patanjali Yoga Sutras there's Kriya Yoga there but uh, a variety of that is taught by the Self-Realization Fellowship so that's a path and as far as I know it includes elements of devotion it includes elements of meditation of pranayama of posture and breath so Raja Yoga elements are there uh, med, uh, devotional elements are there and some amount of um, of philosophical inquiry because Paramahamsa Yogananda that's the path he taught 
but he learned it from his guru Yukteswar Giri in India who comes from the lineage though Giri is uh, the title uh, that means he is a part of the ten orders of non-dualistic monks started by Shankaracharya but his specific lineage was from the great uh, yogi and tantric practitioner Lahiri Mahasaya who by the way was a householder yes and a fully enlightened person now I do not know the details of that path and they are a little secretive about it so they'll have courses and they're supposed to be private well I'll tell you the truth actually I have gone read that course <laughs> I came across <laughs> I came across a copy it says it should not be shared but somebody shared it shared it with me so I know what is there but in general we do not discuss that in public so you'll have to be initiated into that path but that's a path um, earlier the question was what do the gurus in the Ramakrishna order they also initiate they will initiate you into uh, a form of deity yoga that is Ishta Devata a chosen deity and an Ishta mantra and that practice is basically Vedantic but it has elements of bhakti it has elements of meditation, dhyana, elements of tantra also. They're all there in the mantra which is given and the way to meditate. Ultimately, it's, it leads to a non-dualistic realization. So that's, if you take initiation from a guru in the Ramakrishna tradition, that's what you will get. If you take initiation from a guru in the Kriya Yoga, Self-Realization Fellowship, for example, uh, you will be initiated into Kriya Yoga. You will notice that I didn't directly answer the question, and I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Shall we take a question from the internet audience? Yes. Yes. Uh, there's been a lot of interest in the clay pot analogy. So oh, I'll clay pot. I've, I've been talking about that <laughs> in the uh, Aparoksha Anubhuti class. Towards the end, Shankaracharya says, think again and again about the clay pot analogy. Let's hear the questions. Okay. Well, the first one is from Vicky. You said in the pot and clay analogy that the pot is the effect and the clay is the material cause, that there is no such thing as a pot, it is just name, form, and use. And then you said similarly in the case of Brahman and the universe, Brahman is the material cause and the effect is the universe. There is no such thing as the universe, it's Brahman appearing as universe. And then you explained what is meant by Brahman saying it's consciousness which is which of course is no thing, whereas the universe is all material things only. Can you please explain? And, and then, oh, Deepak, shall we go to the next one? Or? All right, let me take this one. Okay. The others also were clay and pot? Yes, they're, they're all clay and pot. All right, clay, clay, clay and pot. Right. Let's go to the next question. So, and Deepak says, in the analogy of clay and pot, it is easy for me to comprehend that there is no such thing as a pot, but only clay. What confuses me is the idea that there is the same clay in all pots. When we have two pots, though the clay has the same chemical composition, it is not as if the clay in them has any continuity. And then Vikas says, is there a role for the reflected consciousness which you have spoken of in the past in the new clay pot analogy you have spoken of recently? If so, how? All right, so lots of things about you would think that a pot and clay is simple enough, but, <laughs> but people get into all sorts of tangles. But it's very natural when you're using it to explain the universe, no less. Remember, in the clay pot example, it's used in this way. First, you have a pot. You say, why a pot? Because I think that was the most common thing in ancient times. When you do an archaeological dig, you usually come up with pottery. So, a pot. Uh, and then you are told, 
Well, you have the part, but the part is an effect, and there is a cause of the part. Cause in the sense something it's made out of. So there is something called clay, which is a cause of the part. So now it comes into our minds that there are two things. Here's a part, and there's something called clay. You say, great, what is this clay? Look carefully at the part. The sides are clay, inside it's clay, the top is clay, the bottom is clay. In fact, everything that you see in that part, what you touch, what you're holding, is clay and nothing but clay. So the effect part is pervaded through and through by the cause, material cause, clay. That's the next stage. Third stage. Well, first stage was pot. Second stage was clay and pot. Third stage was you see that the pot is pervaded by the clay. It is clay through and through. And the fourth stage is there is no thing called pot. The thing, the substance, the reality is clay itself. So pot, then what is a pot? It is not a thing, but it is an appearance of the clay. You agree with me? It's an appearance of the clay. So finally, that reality is one. It's not two. But first we thought the reality was pot. And in the end we think the reality is clay. In Sanskrit, from Ghatta Drishti to Mrittika Drishti. From clay paradigm, from pot paradigm to clay paradigm. In between, however, we thought there were two things. Clay and pot. If you stop there, then it becomes a problem. You shouldn't stop there. You should complete the process and see that the reality of the pot is clay. There, is no, there are not two things called pot and clay. If you stop there, then what will happen is, you'll think, oh, there is God created this universe. God is the cause, universe is the effect. Now, I, here is the universe, where is God? It's like saying, here is the pot, where is clay? Yeah. You have two things then, and you start for a separate search. That's, that leads to dualism. Remember, this is, all this is non-dualistic approach. So, so that leads to dualism and then starts a futile search for God. Or in the case of our own soul, you say there is a body, there is a mind, there is something separate called consciousness. You start searching for that then. This is the problem with the clay pot example. That's why Alan Watts, he said, if you stop in between, it becomes a crackpot example. Not a clay pot, crackpot example. It will lead you into confusion. Now, the first, let me take the questions one after another. I still remember the questions, even if you do not, I remember. <laughs> the first question was, all right, I get it. But clay and pot, both are things. But in the case of consciousness, you're saying consciousness alone is appearing as this universe. Like clay is appearing as a pot. Now clay is a thing which can appear as another thing, as a pot. But consciousness is not a thing. It is the pure subject itself, which experiences all things. See this world, the flower in the meditation, it's a thing. Your eyes, things. The mind, very subtle, but still a thing. Why am I calling your mind a thing? Because you experience it. Whatever you experience is an object, a thing. A mind is a subtle thing. This is a physical thing. Now, consciousness is not a thing, but all the, whatever it experiences, you're seeing consciousness alone is all of this, but these are things, these are objects. How can the pure subject become an object? How can what is not a thing become a thing? You see, it's a deep question and it goes to the heart of Advaita and the answer is as deep or even more deep, it's stunning. The answer is, 
that subject does not become an object. The pure consciousness does not become things. Then you see, you just said all of these things are pure consciousness. No. What I'm saying is, pure consciousness appears as things. These things are not really things out there. In a dream. When you say, I met my friend and we went to Broadway and saw a show. And later you realize, it was all in the mind. Then how did mind become a friend and a Broadway and a show? The answer is, it did not. It appeared like that. It's like a virtuality created in the mind. In the same way, Advaita says, the entire experience of the world, of things, is an appearance in consciousness. Advaita, the consciousness does not really become out there a thing. It does not become space. It does not become matter. does not become time. does not become energy. It appears as space, time, matter, energy. <coughs> It still is consciousness. Now why does this, how does it do this trick? That is the answer for that in one word is Maya. Maya is that which makes the subject, consciousness, you, appear as an object. Which makes the unchanging, immortal, sat, pure existence appear as things which are born and dying. The unchanging appears as the changing. Consciousness, chit, appears as the object. Jada in Sanskrit. The sentient appears as non-sentient in the, in the not nonsense, non-sentient in, in, in your experience. Bliss, ananda, because of maya, appears as dukkha, suffering. It's a trick played by maya. You alone are appearing as the changing world. You the unchanging. You, are, you experience yourself as a changing world. You, the pure subject, consciousness, you experience yourself as the object. You, which, who are bliss yourself, ananda yourself, you experience yourself as a person trapped in a world of dukkha. The Buddha said, sarvam dukkham. Here in this world, definitely true. Everything is dukkha, suffering. It is like the clay appearing as the pot. To answer your question directly, these are things. How can consciousness, which is not a thing, become a thing? Answer is, it does not become a thing. It is an appearance of a thing in what is still the pure subject, as pure consciousness. That's why this entire world is nothing but you. It's your appearance. The meditation which we did, the fourth, the silence. In that silence consciousness, what appears? Waker and waker's world, all things. Dreamer and dream world, all things. And deep sleeper and the darkness of deep sleep. That also is a kind of thing. It's called Ajnana or Tamaha, darkness. But all through the stage, the background is that one consciousness. The second question was that uh, I understand the clay and pot example, but, but how do I know that we are all one consciousness? Because if you have many pots, if these bodies are pots, if you have many parts, then the clay in each part is different. As he said, chemical composition is the same, but the actual material is different. Because if you, suppose you break this part, that part is not broken. If you pound this clay to dust, that clay is not pounded to dust. They are two different things, though they are similar as the same as clay. In philosophy, it is called the type token difference. Remember, in example, this is the problem. You have to stop here. 
Because clay is an example, it's after all an objective thing. So there are divisions. This clay and that clay, the clay here and the clay there, my clay and your clay. There are divisions. Division is possible in clay. In pure consciousness, no division is possible. Ekam. Chit. Pure consciousness. It is divisionless. So it cannot be one consciousness here and another consciousness there. It is one consciousness in which here and there apply, appear. One Swami in the Himalayas is very interesting. He asks, when these Vedanta classes are going on, you are the all-pervading consciousness. And one of the Swamis in the audience said, stop, wait a minute. I would like to be the all-pervading consciousness. But what does it mean to say I am the all-pervading consciousness? I am here. Let alone all-pervading. I don't even pervade this chair. If I'm very fat, then I'll pervade the chair. But I don't pervade anything beyond the chair. This whole room, I'm only in a corner of it. I don't even pervade this whole room. How are you saying I am the all-pervading consciousness pervading the universe? Doesn't make sense. I'm here and not there. And the answer of the teacher was, listen carefully. Ah, but here and here and there are these both not in your awareness. It is in your awareness that you are aware of this place, this body, and that place, that body, and all of them are in awareness. I'm saying that you are the awareness, not the body. The moment you locate yourself in the body, what will happen? Here and there. I'm here, I'm not there. But try to step back into awareness. What does it mean? A good way of understanding this is the dream example. When you wake up from the dream, isn't it true that everything in the dream was your mind? Every place in the dream was your mind? All the time in the dream was in your mind. Nothing, there was no time, space and persons and things in the dream except your mind. That's a mind example, mind and dream example. Here, we are not talking about the mind. We are talking about consciousness in which mind, body and everything are experienced. The difference is this. We normally think here is consciousness like a light. And the world is like an object. Light reveals the object. But light is not the object. The objects are different from the light. But consciousness is not like that. The entire universe appears in consciousness. It does not exist apart from consciousness. If you say universe exists apart from consciousness. And consciousness goes out there and experiences the universe. This is called Sankhya philosophy. Advaita, non-dualistic philosophy is. Universe itself Consciousness itself appears as the universe and experiences the universe within itself. And I will tell you, it may sound very radical and shocking. Look at your own experience. That's what's going on right now. You have never experienced anything outside your consciousness. Think about it. You have never experienced anything other than your consciousness. It is all within your consciousness. So, when you say the pot has clay here and that pot has different clay there. For the example it is alright, clay and pot example. But for consciousness example, there is nothing apart from consciousness. There is no difference in consciousness. Think about it, all these differences are how? Differences in our bodies. Clearly bodies are different. Advaita never denies experience. We experience bodies as being different. We also experience minds as being different. Every person has a different opinion, different thought. In India there is a saying, Nasa Muni Yasya Matam Nabhinnam. 
That person is not a sage, not a philosopher who does not have a separate opinion of his own. So every philosopher has a different answer. Otherwise, you can't be a philosopher. <laughs> so that means our minds are different. Our minds are different. But the consciousness which experiences those minds and bodies, they're not different. So, as far as consciousness is concerned, it is one and unchanging. Yes, clay and pot example, definitely, they are changing. The clay is different in different parts. I'm not saying that it's the same clay in all parts. Uh, it's an example only. The third part of the question was reflected consciousness. How can we see this in the clay and pot example? Remember this. If you have to extend the clay pot example a little more, imagine the pot holds water. Uh, so now the, I'm changing the example. Consciousness is like the sun. And it is reflected in the water as a tiny little reflected sun. Isn't it? Now imagine the pot is the body, the water is the mind, and that little reflected sun there is the reflected consciousness. And the real sun is the real consciousness. So I've changed the, the paradigms, the, the parameters of the example. Now it's no longer clay pot. Clay is not important here. What is important is the real sun is reflected in the water as a reflected sun. Similarly, you, the consciousness, you are reflected in the mind as this awareness which we call ourselves now. I, I, I. The person. This is what we are now. That is called the reflected consciousness. And you are right. The question of the reflected consciousness is not taken up in the clay pot example. It, you can, if you want to understand it, you can say, when the clay appears as a pot and forgets its clay nature and thinks, I am this. It is the clay itself thinking I am a pot. That is the reflected consciousness. When consciousness forgets itself and thinks of itself as a body-mind, it is still consciousness because it is aware. We are aware right now. We are not zombies. We are aware. This awareness right now is not the pure consciousness. It is the reflection of pure consciousness in the mind called Chidabhasa. Pure consciousness, Chit. Reflection, Chidabhasa. Now, um, there was a gentleman here who had a question. Do you remember your question? Yes, please come. Tell us your name and ask the question. Hi, thank you, Swami. I am Bill Humans from New York. I had a question which I also a asked online and it has directly to do with all of this. Um, so if you c come across it online, you can forget it. Um, it's this. Why should anything appear in consciousness at all? So we have a rope and a snake. When we see, oh, it's not a rope. It's, it's not a snake, it's a rope. Why yes. should there even be a rope? Why, pure consciousness must be complete unto itself. Yes. Why should it bother to have anything appear in it? Right, right. And so, you say it's Maya, but how yeah, does but that work? You can still ask why, right? Why should it appear? If you understand Vedanta, one day or the other you will come to this question. This question will continue to bug you for a long time. Don't worry, it will continue to bug you after this session also. Why should it appear? Now, what are the possibilities? Something appears. If there is pure consciousness, something appears in pure consciousness. This is all of this. Or nothing appears. These are the two possibilities, right? And notice, in your lives, in our lives, both possibilities are realized. Consider Om, Ah, waking life, many things appear, industrial grade reality. Many things are appearing right here. And dreams, ooh, again appearance, but a virtual reality. 
but consider mm, no appearance. So both appearance and non-appearance, these are the two possibilities, and both are realized in pure consciousness. In Vedanta, they will say, in a microcosm, in your personal lives, you as pure consciousness appear as all of this, and sometimes don't appear in deep sleep. Right? So both are there. That's what I want to say. Appearance and non-appearance are both experienced by pure consciousness. Right. Now you, your question becomes, you see, at first the question sounds very reasonable. Why should anything appear? If pure consciousness is the only reality, why should anything appear? Now I'm saying, things appear and things do not appear. Both are there. If you ask now, why should things appear and not appear? That doesn't seem to be a, a fair question. Because both possibilities are there, appearance and non-appearance. But still, let's... And remember, all of this may sound very abstract. It's not abstract. We are talking about you. And we are not talking about a single thing outside your daily experience. After all, what are we talking about? Waking, this one. Dreaming, sleeping. And the consciousness in which all three appear and disappear. Now there are many answers to your question. Many, many answers. We are studying the Mandukya Upanishad. In the first chapter you will find this question comes up. Why does the fourth, the pure consciousness, you say that's the reality. But then why does it appear at all as the waking, dreaming and deep sleep? Why, why not nothing? Just pure consciousness. And especially why do we ask this? Because there's so much trouble. Yeah. Waking life full of trouble, strife and struggle. And you finally come to the realization, oh, you need not be in all this trouble. You just realize yourself as pure consciousness, get God realization, nirvana, moksha. But that itself becomes an added to-do. <laughs> I have a mortgage to pay off, I have to go to Trader Joe's and buy these things, and I have to go and exercise, and I have to go to a job and pick up the kids from school, and also become enlightened. <laughs> one, Swami, you have not helped, you have added one more thing to do. Why couldn't I be enlightened forever and all of this could need not appear? So, I think it was Somerset Maugham, when, when he was studying Vedanta, he learned that Brahman projects this universe. He writes in a sort of wry, dry humor, you know, he writes, I felt Brahman could have let well enough alone. <laughs> could have let it be, why project at all? It created so much trouble for us. And so there would be, you are Brahman itself. But even there, see, if you're like a little kid, you can push, you can keep on asking why. Why at all? The answer is, there's one answer, one beautiful answer is, uh, it is leela, it is play. It is the very joy of Brahman to express itself in all of these ways. You say, yeah, that's poetic, but it's, it's still not very logical. It's poetic, it's beautiful. Leela, it's, this is the play of God. In one beautiful Bengali song, God is imagined as a little boy playing with suns and moons. And the ima uh, imagery is very touching because the boy is very lonely. Because in the entire universe, there's nobody else to play with. <laughs> so Brahman plays because Brahman wants playmates. So Brahman pretends to be you and him and her and me and all of us. And then Brahman can play. And so yeah, that's great, but uh, it's still... It's nice, it sounds nice, but it's not philosophy, it's not logic. Tell me, logically, why should pure consciousness appear as anything at all? Why? Still the same why. There's a whole book, I'd recommend it. Jim Holt, 
he wrote this book, Why Does the World Exist? He's a New Yorker, he lives in Manhattan. I hope we can get him here someday to speak. He, did, he went on a journey. He went to philosophers, theologians. Um, he didn't ask an Advaitin. But then the book would have come to a close very fast then. <laughs> he asked physicists, he, went, uh, he asked um, mathematicians, uh, logicians, um, and the same question, why is there something rather than nothing? So he got answers from quantum mechan uh, mechanics, he got answers from uh, uh, mathematicians, he got answers from uh, theologians, he got answers from philosophers, and it's a very fascinating, it's the biggest question of all, why is there a universe at all? So I'm on the last chapter now. The last chapter is why do I exist? <laughs> so um, that is the question. Now let me get straight to the final answer which Advaita Vedanta has. The final answer is, you'll say, the, the penultimate answer is Maya. It is not Brahman creating this universe. There is no separate universe. It is Brahman alone. When you say why anything at all, Brahman is there. You say, if you ask why Brahman at all, that question cannot be asked. Well, Brahman is existence itself. It cannot help existing. So Brahman is existence, is being. But you say, why this universe? The answer in Vedanta is, Brahman through Maya is appearing as this universe. It has not really become this universe. You have not really become this person. You are pure consciousness, appearing and playing as this person. So it's an appearance, it's not, rea it's not reality. Reality is Brahman, was Brahman and remains Brahman. At this point, many people might quit. But a persistent kid wouldn't quit. Would say, but why Maya? But why Maya at all? Why not pure existence consciousness, please? Why not the fourth? Why one, two, three? Why wake a dreamer deep sleep? Why a physical universe, subtle universe, causal universe? Why not just the absolute itself? Why? And here, if you ask why Maya, Swami Vivekananda says the question is wrong. Again, here, he doesn't explain why. But I kept on asking, no, why is the question wrong? All right, I'll give up the question if you say the question is wrong. But let me ask another question, that why is the question wrong? It seems to be a reasonable question to me. Why is the question wrong? And here is the final thing which I have got so far. The question why, why Maya, is wrong because consider what you are asking when you ask this question. You are asking for an explanation. Isn't it? Follow this carefully. When you ask why, you're asking for an explanation. And what is an explanation? It's a cause. Why is the grass wet? Because it rained. Why did it rain? Because there were clouds. Why are there clouds? Because cause. Because of evaporation. Why is there evaporation? Because of the sun. Cause. So, when you ask Maya, you are asking what? What is the cause of Maya? Why is there Maya? What is the cause of Maya? But take a closer look. What is Maya? Maya is time, space, causation. When you say Maya, you have already accepted causation. When you question Maya, it is before causation. You cannot ask why about causation when there is no causation at all. Maya itself is not caused. Causation begins with Maya. You see, I am giving you a logical answer now. If you put it in a logical format, it's like asking. Let me give you an example. It's like asking. Yeah, some of you have got it. I can see the smiles. But it's like asking. It's very simple actually. It's like asking, 
Time, space and causation. What was there before time? If you ask before time, you have already accepted time. You are already within time. Otherwise you cannot ask before. Before and after are time words. If you ask what is outside space? The moment you ask outside space, the question is wrong. Because you have already accepted space. Inside and outside are space words. You can't have an outside space. Similarly, when you say causation, you can't ask why causation. The moment you ask why, you've already accepted cause and effect. If there's no cause and effect, you can't even ask why. That's why, that's why, you see why. <laughs> All language operates in time, space and causation. Yeah. All language operates in the realm of duality. I hope, if, if, even if that doesn't satisfy, it should satisfy the logician in you. The heart is not satisfied. The heart is satisfied only by enlightenment. Mm -hmm. yeah. Very good question. That's really as deep as we can go. Question from the internet audience. Thank you, Bill. And let me know when the food is ready. Uh, we have some questions on karma. On karma, yes, that's always a staple diet. Mm. <laughs> The first one is from David in Montreal, Canada. He has a question about the permanence of karma and samskaras. What is the nature of the thread that connects, connects samskaras to one jiva, even after deep sleep, even after death of the gross body? How is karma earmarked to one jiva life after life? I am curious as to the nature of this invisible yet resilient connection that we are trying to cut to attain enlightenment. Then from Shuba, if we are all the same witness consciousness and we are all the same God within, how does the law of karma affect us as the Lord is free from all rules? He also has another question. And secondly, I want to ask what is the purpose of our life? Okay. <laughs> this is a small one. <laughs> all right. Suresh. Okay. Suresh, why do you think karma does not adequately answer the problem of evil? As far as I am concerned, the law of karma is a science, and it is more than adequate to answer the problem of evil. Those are heavy questions. I might forget. Just stay there. If I forget, I'll ask you to repeat the question. The first question was, um, the first one was about the permanence of karma and samskaras. What is the nature work? of the thread? Yeah. What, what's yeah. the nature of the thread? What connects us? He says, when we fall asleep, deep sleep, and we wake up, we have the same karma. When we die and go on to other lives, same karma. I might even in include one more thing. You know, the, uh, Hinduism believes in a cyclical universe. Universe is created or projected, srishti. And then it exists and evolves over a period of billions of years. By the way, evolution. Somebody asked a question. I don't know if it's included this time. It's included. We'll come to that. Anyway. So it evolves over billions of years. And then finally it is destroyed again. Um, and then there is nothing for a long time. So if that happens, then where does karma go? If everything in the universe, stars, planets, uh, everything is destroyed. Even minds and all of this stuff. So you have to understand what is the meaning of creation, existence, and destruction in Vedanta. Creation, existence, and destruction in Vedanta is nothing but this. Get this. It is 
The unmanifest becoming manifest, that is called creation and existence. The manifest going back to an unmanifest state, it is called destruction. So for example, you shape, back to the clay and pot, you shape clay into a pot. You say pot has been created. It's not really creation ab initio. It is just the, the potential pot was already there in the clay. You gave it form. And when you smash the pot and your fragments left, it has gone back to its clay, clay nature. It was clay earlier, it is clay now, it remains as clay. But a form came, appeared to us, and we used it in particular ways to put water there and store it there. And then the form disappeared. That appearance of the form is called creation, srishti. That existence of that form is called sthiti, existence. And the merging back of the form back to its material cause, pot to clay. We say ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That is called destruction. So in Hinduism, or in, in all of Hinduism, there is no question of creation of something out of nothing. It's not like a rabbit being pulled out of a magician's hat. There always was something. The question is, was it expressed or not expressed? It was a seed. The entire mango tree or the banyan tree is in the huge trees in the seed. But not physically in the seed, as information. We, now we know, modern biology tells us, the entire information is coded in the uh, RNA and DNA in our cells. It just expresses itself. Give it air and light and nutrients and earth. It uses all of that to express a potential already within itself. Similarly, the universe is created. Now, how to answer this question? When we fall asleep, from our point of view, we go into a potential state, the deep sleep. We did the meditation today, the mm, uh, ooh, mm. The uh is called the physical state, gross state. Ooh is called the subtle state. And mm is called the potential state. Remember, in the deep sleep, potential state, everything that you see and experience in your waking life, in your dreams, it is all there in the deep sleep, just hidden. When you switch off your computer, all your data is there. It's just not expressed, not usable at that time. When you switch it on, it's not gone, thank God. When you switch it on, it's all back there again. Similarly, in deep sleep, it is a potential state in Sanskrit, abhyakta. So karma does not disappear. The tendencies which we have accumulated in our waking life, they remain in deep sleep in an unexpressed seed form. Gaudapada calls it bija, seed. In a seed form it remains. And it sprouts. When does it sprout? Gaudapada calls it the dreaming and waking is the sprout. It was there, the same karma, same tendencies continue. One more aspect of this. Karma has two aspects. A personal aspect which is in our minds, our tendencies. But karma also has a cosmic aspect which will give us Happiness and pleasure, sukha dukkha in, in this lifetime and lifetimes to come. It has created this body for us. That, that part of karma, the cosmic karma, is not in our individual minds. According to dualistic Vedanta, it is in the department of the Lord God. One of the functions of God in Vedanta, in, in theistic Vedanta, it's called karmadhyaksha or karmadata. The one who gives the results of karma. It's like your bank manager. It's your money, but it's kept, stored safely, we hope. And your bank manager 
gives it out to you when you ask for it. So there are deposits we make in the cosmic bank of our karma, and we don't know whether it's, uh, uh, unfortunately, like, not like our bank, the uh, cosmic bank does not give us an uh, account statement at every month or something, you know, automatically generated accounts. No, we don't know really what's happening there. So uh, it's there, and it does not disappear. Now you will say, what happens in the end when the universe is, is destroyed at the end of the universe? Then what exists? Only God exists with Maya. Remember, destruction means going back to the unmanifest state. The unmanifest state of the universe is called Maya. Brahman with the unmanifest universe is called Ishwara, God. And God projects this unmanifest universe into this manifest form. So karma is never destroyed. It goes on. Even when the universe is destroyed, if I have karma remaining, I will remain merged in Maya, no individual uh, um, uh, distinction. But when the, when the Lord creates this universe again, He throws us out, manifests us to play and work out our karma again. And this goes on until you get liberation, until you get freedom from this. One Swami put it nicely that it's a cosmic hide-and-seek game. What do you mean? Right now, when the universe exists, we are all playing, we are searching for God, and God has hidden himself, herself, itself, whatever you call it. Because in Hinduism, all three are possible. So, God is hidden. The ultimate reality is hidden. And we are playing now, seeking. And when the universe is destroyed at the end, cosmic dissolution, there's no real end, because it's all cyclical, it'll come back again. In cosmic dissolution, we are all absorbed back into Maya, God alone exists. So God is there, but we have disappeared. We, have, we are hidden. So God searched, where, where did those fellows go? And then he finds us and throws us out, creates the universe again, and hides. And so this is cosmic drama of hide and seek which is going on. Karma is never destroyed. There is a saying, Nabhuktam kshiyate karma janma shatakoti bhirapi. Even in millions of births, Karma will not be destroyed unless you, it gives its results. You will experience the results of your karma. There's only one way out. That is spiritual liberation. So that is the idea of moksha or nirvana in um, Hinduism, Buddhism and Jainism. Yes. So that's the first question on karma. The second question was, remind me again. If we are all the same witness consciousness and we are all the same God within, how does the law of karma affect us as the Lord is free from all rules? Answer is a very encouraging answer. It doesn't affect you. <laughs> Swami Vivekananda's beautiful poem, Song of the Sannyasi. What does he say? Good, good. Bad, bad. And none escape the law. That's the law of karma. Good, good. If you are nice, the result is nice. This life will be nice and after that you get to go to nice places. Heaven, Beverly Hills or things like that. <laughs> and then if, if I am naughty, then we go to the other place. So bad, bad. And then he says, scary, he says, none escape the law. But whosoever wears a form, you limit yourself, body, mind, you become a person, wears the chain too. What is the chain? The chain of karma. Cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect. Endless chain. Every action has a consequence. Cause and effect. It's fair. It's a little pitiless, but it's fair. But, 
here is the question. And Swami Vivekananda says, so, so what's the point? What's Vedanta? Next line, he says, but far beyond name and form, far beyond karma, is Atman ever free? Know thou art that sannyasi bold. Say Om Tatsat Om. O monk, know yourself not as this person. This person is subject to karma. But you are not subject to karma. You never were subject to karma. You always were liberated. You are that infinite, ever free consciousness. Say Om Tatsat Om. Om that reality. Om. That is what I am. So is the Lord ever free? Lord ex affected by karma? No. Then you will say, but I am the ever free Lord. Yes. But I am affected by karma. Remember, you are affected by karma as this person. The whole tangle comes when we mix up the absolute with the relative. As this person, certainly. Whosoever wears a form, wears the chain too. But all of Vedanta goes to show you are not the person. Think about it. We just did the meditation. Waker, dreamer, deep sleeper. Waker is trapped by karma. Even the dreamer is trapped by a kind of karma. <coughs> because whatever things you take in, in the waking stage, that itself is played out as a dream, like a virtual reality. And deep sleeper, deep sleeper doesn't seem to be affected by karma. But remember, it's all there. It'll come up as waking and dreaming. The seed is there. It'll come up as the... But the Turiya, the fourth, which plays as these three, that is not affected by karma. You are not affected by karma. Karma is the script which you write to, to, to script a theater to create your own Broadway and enjoy it. But the director is not affected by the script. The author of the script is not affected. The playwright is not affected by the script. It's something that he creates spontaneously. What was the third question? Um, what do you think? Why do you think karma does not adequately explain answer the, the law problem? Of, of of explain evil. evil right. This actually refers back to something I've said a number of times. Um, look, it goes like this. There is a question which is asked in all theistic religions. If God exists, why is there so much suffering? That's the theistic, dualistic form. The more sophisticated philosophical form was what Bill asked a little earlier. Why does that one absolute appear as all this? Why does the one appear as many, if you are philosophical? Or if you could be just a person suffering in life, you put the same question, not in such a sophisticated philosophical way. You say that if it, all this is true, God exists, Vedanta is true, or all of this religion is true, then why is there so much suffering? If you investigate a little more the structure of the question, it seems to be, God, if God exists, what kind of God? A personal God, a creator God, an all-powerful God, and an all-loving and good God. What do we think of God as? We think in all the theistic religions, in Christianity, Judaism, in Vaishnavism, in Hinduism, in, in Shaktaism, in, in, uh, in Shaivism, in Islam, in all of the religions or varieties of approaches within Hinduism which believe in personal God. God is always seen as omnipotent, all-powerful, but also good and loving. Now here is the contradiction. If God is all-powerful, God can do everything, can remove our suffering. And if God is loving, God would not want us to suffer. Then how is their suffering possible? You see, if God were not loving, God is a dictator. 
all powerful but not loving then we can explain suffering why is there suffering because the big guy wants it why does the big guy want it like that is he bad yeah he's bad <laughs> and that was the conception of god in some primitive societies earlier before we went on to more advanced conception of god so um Robert Wright, right, who wrote a book called The Evolution of God. It's not that God has evolved, it's, it's that our, our idea of God has evolved. Swami Vivekananda says, God does not evolve, but our conception of God evolves. So our primitive conception of God was power, all-powerful. Next conception of God was justice, powerful but just. You can see how the law of karma comes in there, justice. Then even more advanced, not only just, but loving and forgiving. So God becomes a little more cuddly. He's <laughs> a nasty, tough guy to begin with, and becomes nice and cuddly, grandfatherly towards the <laughs> end. But if the problem arises at that point, if God is um, powerful and loving and nice, then why is there so much trouble? If on the other hand you say God is loving and nice but not powerful, can't prevent this suffering, unfortunately. Then you say, not much of a God. Hmm? Fired, laid off, underperforming. <laughs> uh, the next performance review says you, you are, you're laid off. You, you couldn't prevent suffering. All powerful, all loving leads to the problem of evil. What is the problem of evil? Every religion has to explain. If you have such a nice idea of God, if such a God exists, why is there evil in the world? And many answers are there. Many, many answers. You might not think that. There are many answers. There's a whole branch of theology called theodicy. What is theodicy? That branch of theology which tries to justify the ways of God to man. Now, God needs lawyers. God needs lawyers to defend him to us. When we charge him with this and that, God needs a lawyer. So, what are the answers? I will not bore you with the answers. Suffice it to say, if you knew the answers, you would be underwhelmed. You would not be convinced. There is a professor called um, Professor Herman, Arthur Herman of the uh, University of Hawaii, Department of Philosophy there. He wrote a book, The Problem of Evil in Indian Philosophy. But he didn't limit himself to Indian philosophy. He got these answers. Why is there evil? Why is there suffering in the world if God exists? What, what could be the answer? He got not one or two or three, but 23 answers from the different philosophies of the world, different religions of the world, even from literature, he got 23 answers. Now the point is, the last answer he takes up is the law of karma. Why is there suffering? Because of causality, cause and effect. We have done certain things, the results of which we are getting good and bad. We are doing certain things, the results of which we will get. Why? Because it's cause and effect. The world functions on causality. So he says the law of karma is the best answer to this question. Why is there evil and suffering in the world? Look, it protects God. God is omniscient. God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. But he has given us the power of choice and the law of karma. As we exercise our choice, the law of karma comes and helps us or kicks us. Depending on what we do with it. There he has added a chapter, defects of the law of karma. He has shown the defects of all the other 22 answers. None of them are worth considering, he says. But the law of karma is, he says, it is accepted by all schools of Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, all the Indic religions. 
even in the Abrahamic traditions, in um, Judaism and all, you will find the, the core of the law of karma. As you sow, so shall you reap. It's there. Then defects, there are defects. There are severe defects, he has pointed out those defects in one chapter, I will not go into that. That's why I said it's not an adequate explanation of the problem of evil. But I did not say it's a poor explanation. In fact, Professor Harman says it's the best we have. All the other explanations don't come up to that. You know, what are the explanations? I'll give you some. Uh, one is character making explanation. God makes us suffer so that we'll be stronger. Suffering makes you stronger. Well, in some cases it does, but in many cases it does not. A baby is born in a starvation-prone area and starves to death. How did it become stronger? An animal suffers. Animals suffer helplessly. A dog suffers and dies. How did it become stronger? So in many cases, suffering does not really make you stronger. It can just destroy a person. So this is one, one answer. Another answer is, no, there is no suffering because this is the best of all possible worlds. See, God created the world, but there are some limits to creation. So the best he could do was this. Very poor, I must say. <laughs> Vivekananda says in a fit of annoyance, I could have created a better world. <laughs> <laughs> so these answers, there are 23 such, uh, 22 such uh, theories, different theories, and which have been held by different philosophers, um, uh, theologians over, over time. So, one is the free will answer. We have free will, so we have created this mess. That's a major answer. The Catholic Church holds that. So God has given us choice, but then why is our choice so badly loaded that we are so prone to mistakes? 99% are not saints, not 99, 99.999% are not saints because we tend to misuse this free will. Why do we tend? Because we are so constituted. Why did God not constitute us all to be saints? We had free will, we'll use free will and become saintly. So even that argument is not so, not, so, not so nice. So these are the reasons why those are, theories are discarded. Karma is taken as an explanation. And it is, a power, as, as he says, it is quite adequate. But there are defects. If you're interested in what are the defects of the law of karma, you can go to that last chapter of Harman's book. You will see he has set it out. Yes. But remember, one thing I must say. Karma is not the final thing in spiritual life. It's causality. Remember this again and again. Sri Ramakrishna did not like too much of karma talk. When somebody said, we get the result of what we have done. And Sri Ramakrishna says, oh, I see you are one of those kind, that kind of people. You know what such people will think next? I will get God realization if I do these things. So the result will be God realization. No, God realization cannot be held as a result of your efforts. It depends on the grace of God. The karma kind of calculation comes in. I've done this, and then the fear comes in. I've done so many things. I'm going to get, get it back now. Sri <laughs> yeah. so Ramakrishna says, the law of karma is transcended by the grace of God. Concentrate on God, on bhakti, on spiritual realization. If you don't like God and God talk, then concentrate on the fact that, as Vivekananda says, far beyond name and form is Atman ever free. That one is beyond karma, that, that fourth one we talked about. Where is karma? Waking, dreaming, deep sleep. In waking, dreaming, deep sleep. In consciousness itself, there's no karma. So you are actually free of karma. Stay with that if you like the path of knowledge. Or if you don't like that, then stay with the God idea. God is free of karma and will take us beyond karma, hold on to, to God.
In the meantime, it's good to know that cause and effect are real and be careful in life. Swami Vivekananda said, one must know how to work the machine so that the machine will set you free. You can't run away from the machine. It'll catch you and you'll get mangled if you, if you try to run towards the spokes. At the, at the axle of the wheel, there is, you can hold on to something. If you move out too much to the spokes of the whirling wheel, you get mangled by the law of karma, crushed <laughs> and twisted. So, all right. I think I've answered all the three questions. You want you have a follow-up question? Know somebody? Yes, please come. My name is Sam. Please tell us your name. Sam. Sam. All of that is really great and everything. You just said karma was uh -oh. fair. <laughs> uh, fair. Yeah. I don't think karma is fair because how did my karma start? That's my one, after 45 years of seeking, that's my one question. Right. Why do I suffer? How did it start, my ego and my karma? That is a question which Shankaracharya asks in his commentaries, where he cuts down the law of karma. Ultimately, you would expect a non-dualist will not accept the law of karma either, right? Because ultimately only Brahman exists and there's no karma there. So one of the questions he raises is, Karma is cause and effect, right? Cause comes first and effect later. So there's a chain linked one to another. Then if you go back, what is, the what is this the result of past karma? What was that the result of the karma in the life before? Then this question will come, what Sam is asking. How did it start? How did it start? It started, how does any karma start? There's a chain which, follow this, there's a chain which Shankara gives. Avidya kama karma. Ignorance, desire, karma. What does it mean? We do things and we get the results. That is the law of karma. But then the question comes, why? I've not forgotten the question. Your question was a time question. When did it start? But before that, I'm going into a little deeper. When and how? Okay, how? Let's, I'm taking up the when, how. When? Why? Taking, why? How? Let me take up the why and how. The when will be explained by it. So the how or the why, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about that now. Let's take, instead of going back in time to the beginningless, of time, beginningless time or the creation of the universe, let's take it right now. Any karma we do now, why do we do it? And the answer in Vedanta is because we want something. It could be as simple as food, clothing and shelter, or it could be I want a cookie or I want to earn a livelihood, I want a relationship. We engage in karma because we want. This is in Sanskrit called karma. Karma, action. Karma stands for both action and its results. So karma is action and result. Why? Karma, desire. Ask why? Why do we have desire? And the answer is avidya, ignorance. Ignorance of what? Our purnata, our complete infinite nature, we are already that, we don't know it. We don't know it, we don't feel it. It's nowhere in sight for us. And as a result, we think we are limited. I'm this person. I need food. I need protection. I need praise. I need uh, people around me. I need entertainment. I need to stay young. I need uh, not to die. So all of this comes from a sense of incompleteness, smallness, finitude. I find myself limited in time. I will die. 
limited in space, and this little guy, here is this vast universe. And caught in causation, time, space and causation, results keep coming to me. So this is ignorance, avidya, in Sanskrit avidya, now the chain is complete. Avidya, kama, karma. Ignorance leads to desire. Why? What's the link? Because ignorance makes me feel incomplete. Then how do I try to complete myself? The big mistake I make is not looking at myself but looking at the world. What do I find in the world? I find a mind, a person. What do I find? A body. What do I find? A world. Now this body and mind, they need things. And I spend the rest of my life feeding the body, clothing the body, satisfying the desires of the mind, and that's what, how it goes on. And it generates karma. So, remember the chain. Avidya, kama, karma. Ignorance, and ignorance not of physics, chemistry or biology, but ignorance of our real infinite nature. Leading to desire, in between is incompleteness. Leading to desire, and desire leading to karma, and karma gives its consequences. Now, I suspect Sam will ask. Yes, I am. <laughs> Sam is going to ask. How did it start? Ah, how, if I, how did it start? I said karma started because of desire. Okay, how did desire start? It started because of the feeling of incompleteness. Where did this feeling of incompleteness come from? Because it, it comes from ignorance of our complete nature. We don't know it. Now, Sam's question there will be, how did ignorance start? Then this ignorance, you're, you're finally driving it back to ignorance. How did this ignorance come about? How did I become an individual? How did the individual come about? How did I become an individual? How? how? God created me for his Leela. Yes. So, um... If you, uh, you have answered your question, if, uh, if God created you for, your, for his so Leela, So calm then is not fair. Uh-huh. So calm is not fair. No, wait, wait. <laughs> Karma is not fair. In the dualistic world, this question will come up because you are creating a difference between you and God. But what we are doing in non-dualism is that there is no difference between you and God. You as the person, Sam, right. is subject to karma. But right within you, the real you is present right there. And the real you is not limited to the person, Sam. It's an infinite awareness which experiences itself as Sam now. If it forgets itself, that's ignorance. Then it thinks, I am Sam and only Sam. And then you're trapped. But if you're not only Sam, you are one consciousness, here you are Sam, there you are Sham, there you are Ram, there you are John, here you are Swami. Then you begin to have a sense of limitlessness and your sense of suffering and you know, complaint goes down. But let me come back to the interesting philosophical question. If you push it further that way, you say then all of it goes back to ignorance of our real nature as Brahman. You might ask, I am Sam and I'm comfortable with the fact and I have Sam's problems. But now you're adding something new. You are telling me that I have a Brahman nature. I thought I was a pot. You're telling me I'm clay. I have a Brahman nature. Now I have an additional question. I have Sam's problems plus one more problem you've added. How do I not know that I am Brahman, that I am the Absolute, that I am the ever-trouble-free, karma-free consciousness? How do I not know that? The answer to that is avidya or ignorance. And then Sam can come back with the first question. Okay, the same question stands. How did this avidya come? If I am the Absolute, how come I have ignorance? Right? 
So how did ignorance begin? Ignorance leads to desire, desire leads to karma. You know the chain, avidya, karma, karma. Now the question is, how did ignorance begin? And here the answer will annoy you. The answer is, it is beginningless. <laughs> there is no beginning to ignorance. When I've heard this, I know what is going in your, in your minds, and I had the same question. That's a cop-out. What you call in New York, a cop-out? You're not answering the question. How did ignorance begin? Answer is, it's beginningless. It did not begin. It has no beginning in time. Can you explain that? How is that possible? Actually, it's pretty simple. Any ignorance is beginningless. The professor J.N. Mahanti is a philosopher. He told me this. A very simple answer. Any ignorance is beginningless. Suppose I ask Sam, do you know Hindi? No. So, no. I'm ignorant of Hindi, Swami. Now if I ask you, since when are you ignorant of Hindi? So before you were born, you knew Hindi? Maybe in a past life. But you have no knowledge of that? No. So you were in ignorance about your knowledge or ignorance. So ignorance was there before your birth also. Right. Right? Any kind of ignorance is beginningless. Uh, if, if I say, I don't know Spanish. I have an ignorance about Spanish. When did this ignorance start? Beginningless. But the point is, ignorance can come to an end. The moment I start taking Spanish lessons or Sam takes Hindi lessons, the ignorance about Hindi begins to disappear. But ignorance is beginningless. So your question disappears into that beginningless ignorance. But the point is you can do something about it. You can remove that ignorance through knowledge. And Vedanta provides, or why only Vedanta? Any kind of spiritual approach provides that knowledge to break through that ignorance. The monks in the Himalayas, when you question too deeply about this, like Sam, how did this ignorance come about? How did Maya come about? Their answer is, don't try to establish ignorance, try to remove ignorance. <laughs> Their answer in Hindi is, Agyan ko sidh mat kijiye, agyan ko kaatiye. Try to cut down ignorance with knowledge. Don't try to look for the roots of ignorance, you'll never find it. In fact, it's because the whole thing is an appearance, you will find these fault lines everywhere. If you probe too deeply, you'll end up with paradoxes. Even science is ending up, ending up with paradoxes today. When you probe really deeply, you don't get a neat picture tied up. The great um, logician, Kurt Gödel, the most brilliant mathematician, logician of his time, who was right here in Princeton, in fact. He was, he's credited with that incompleteness theorem. So I don't understand it at all. It's, it's terribly complicated mathematics. But basically, I, I gather the point of that whole thing is that if you have a consistent logical system, it will be incomplete at some point. And if you have a complete system, it will be inconsistent at some point. What do I mean by complete system? A dualistic, devotional approach. If you ask such questions, why did this happen? Why did God create me? Where did karma start? The answer always will be, it's God's wish. It's the play of God. Now if you admit that, then it's consistent. God is there, whatever God does, fine. But it's not rational. It's not complete there. There's a there's a gap left there. If you take Advaita, uh, uh, there, is, there is 
uh, or, or Advaita, well, you can put it this way. Advaita is consistent, is, is logical and rational, but it seems to be incomplete at one point. There's an openness where Maya comes in. Yeah. And Dvaita is uh, complete in one sense. That, yes, if you admit God and God does anything, so you, anything can be explained by the wish of God. It's complete, but it is inconsistent. Yeah, that, that's the better way to put it. That it's not very rational. At that point, you're giving up rationality. You're just saying, yes, if you to believe this. So we had to appeal to Kurt Godel to answer Sam's question. <laughs> How are we doing with the food situation? Okay, we're good. Did you want to ask something else? Or you're good for the time being? You can I come back in fall with your question. Yeah, okay, I will. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that reminds me. The internet audience, uh, we have a question. We have got one more question. Okay, let's have that, that question. Um, for the internet audience, hold your questions until September because the center is going to be closed. There will be no more Ask Swami sessions in July and August and we will start again in September. The last question from the internet audience. Yes, this is from Karan. He's 28 years old and an architect by profession and a student of philosophy by choice. The Gita says not to think of the results. Vivekananda also says fix your goal, find the path and enjoy the process. But at the same time today, certain principles such as visualization techniques encourage us to achieve our goals. Many decorated athletes, for example, have used this principle of visualization to achieve success. Is there any meeting point between Gita's philosophy and such psychological principles of visualization? And if so, can I focus on my desired goal during meditation so as to strengthen my desire or should I focus on shunyata itself while meditating? Okay, just hold it there. The question as I understand is, in karma yoga you're telling us that you should not have, you should not be motivated by desire and perform the actions as worship of God and enjoy the process. And yet we have all these techniques, visualization techniques. I think they're like, you want to become rich, so you imagine, visualize yourself as a millionaire or something, and then you set to work. Or more seriously, Athletes in sports psychology, they talk about the power of visualization. Your entire performance, like a race or like a, like a swimming or playing a game of tennis or something, or you're a dancer, you can sit and meditate calmly and intensely visualize every movement, every step of the way, and then you actually do it. You will see how powerful it is. So are the two contradictory? I want something, I'm visualizing myself getting it. Is it con does it contradict? I don't want anything. I'll do it without a motive. Remember, you are making a, a confusion here between what is the ultimate purpose of karma yoga? The ultimate purpose of karma yoga is enlightenment, God-realization. That is an end to all worldly desiring. So there you cannot confuse it with worldly desires. But you can use visualization. So you're doing karma yoga. Suppose you go, you're going to go out there and... Uh, uh, talk with a difficult person and, uh, and, and deal with this person and solve the problems. Before you go into that, if you sit and, and role play it in your mind, if you visualize it, it'll be better, definitely. You can combine those visualization techniques with karma yoga. There is a whole process of visualization in meditation in Veda. Uh, it is said any work that you do just mechanically gives you lesser results. Any work that you do with visualization, Vidyaya karoti, shraddhaya. That means using, Vidya here is a kind of Vedic meditation. 
It's basically an ancient kind of visualization. If you do it with visualization, do it with self, with awareness, mindfulness, that work becomes many times more powerful. So visualization is definitely a powerful technique and you should use it in every aspect of your life. If you have worldly desires, and many have, what's the problem? Then use visualization, it will help you to perform better. If you want to transcend worldly desires, then use visualization to do your um, karma yoga or your meditation, whatever you do. In meditation, what are we doing except visualization? But that's visualization without worldly desiring. Visualization plus worldly desire will give you worldly results. Visualization without worldly desires, the desire, then there is a desire. Don't think there is no desire. There is a desire for God. Somebody said, desire for God is there then. Then you have not given up all desires. But Sri Ramakrishna gives the answer. The desire for God is not to be counted among desires. He gave an example. You take too many sweets, mishti in Bengali. Take too many sweets, it leads to acid reflux. Acid reflux. Acidity. And then... Michri, what is it? Uh, sugar candy. He says, if you take sugar candy, that acts as an antacid. That's also sweet. So that should not be counted as a sweet because it, it has an eff opposite effect. It's a soothing effect. It removes your acidity. Similarly, worldly desires create the acidity of suffering. The desire for God acts as an antacid. It removes that su suffering created by worldliness. So it should not be counted as a, as a desire. Uh, karma yoga is performed for enlightenment. Right. Yes. The food is really waiting for us now. Um, I think we'll, we'll deal with that question for the time being. Um, there'll be a couple of announcements. Let me do the chant first and then a couple of announcements. And then we will all go down for food. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu I pray to the Lord, may the blessings of the Lord be upon all of us. May the warm sunny days of summer be filled with joy and bliss and peace of mind. Until we meet again. What would you say in German? Auf Wiedersehen? Yes, till we meet again uh, in September. May you have a wonderful summer. <laughs>